The reason I wanted to be here by the snack poster is that because that was the day I was hired as a full-time employee. And that was my first job, and I was interviewing with Bill a, a few weeks before, and he's telling me about snack and this concert. So that they, it really means something to me. But what, what I want to talk about for the next few minutes is, you know, you've all heard Bill Graham's stories, and you love seeing pictures with him and, you know, and the Bob Dylan and the Stones. But what's not talked about is actually the company, some of the, the, you know, the business aspects of the company, the politics of rock and roll, some of the politics that were going on in the Bay Area at that time, and the, the period of time when this kind of seedy rock and roll community became, became a big business. What I'm gonna talk about will, will involve Shoreline, uh, how Shoreline and how and why it came to be. And, and what was going on in the music industry. So I'm gonna give you a little timeline. I, I assume that you've all been through the exhibit and you've seen, for instance, the posters on the other side of the closing of, of the Fillmore's, the Fillmore East and Fillmore West. Well, no one's ever asked, why did he close the Fillmore? They were so successful. Why did he close it? He closed it simply because the agents, the talent agents at that time, and the managers, as Bill would say, they, they were just getting greedy. They were asking for too much money. It was getting harder and harder to put on shows in these smaller places. So he closed the Fillmore's in 1971 and basically continued doing shows, but in much larger arenas. At that time, he had Winterland, Winterland Ballroom, for those of you who don't remember, was at, the, at the corner of Post and Steiner. And then in 71, at that time, there were shows at the Berkeley Community Theater. Uh, he started doing bigger rock shows at the Cal Palace and the Oakland Coliseum. From the late 60s through the early 70s, there was a, a, an ethics in the rock and roll world that if you were a concert promoter and you took a shot at booking an unknown act, you had the right to you know, bring that act back and, and play it again on some other, you know, some other show or a headline or being a supporting act. So at Winterland, there are always three acts, headliner, support, and opener. And our object, and my object, is I was booking shows with Bill for a, a solid 10 years before I started developing amphitheaters, is that we would try to book everything. If, when we talked to a talent agent, I would buy everything they had and package it in such a way that the show would do well enough you know, that you know, we wouldn't lose too much if we lost. It was called establish a relationship with the artist. And that artist relationship, never in writing, never a contract, it was always understood that if you took a shot with the artist and no one else did, and you didn't screw up, you had the right to continue working with that artist and the rest of their career. And that's how we had relationships with artists and managers and agents. Well, in the early 70s, what happened was that there were some new agents, young agents. By the way, in, in the mid-70s, I'm like in my mid-20s, I was already considered an old guy, some of these <laughs> younger agents. And in uh, and, and the late 70s, uh, acts that we were working with for years now became big acts, big enough to play the Cal Palace or the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, I would get a call from an agent. They say, Danny, would you like to do, you know, XYZ. I said, I'd love to. I'll do it at the, you know, they, it's perfect for the Cow Palace. We can, you know, the ticket price will be this. You can make that. They would call back invariably say, oh, Danny, you know, and Bill, we'd love to work with you, but we have an offer from someone else. 
And this started a, a vicious battle almost every day we came to work of having to not outmaneuver, but having to tell the, remind the agent that when no one would book your baby band that's now grown up to a mature act, you didn't go to that competitor, you came to us. Well, you know, Danielle, you know, that's how things go. You know, that's, so it became, every day it became like going to work. I mean, going to battle. In 1975, the Concord Pavilion opened up and we did all the shows there for years. Very successfully, uh, never had a problem. And uh, about 1981, I get this phone call from an agent in New York. Oh, I'm sorry, Danny. Sorry to, you know, sorry to hear what happened. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, you got thrown out of the Concord Pavilion. I said, what do you mean we got thrown out? We've been there since the very beginning. You know, oh, no, they, they made an exclusive deal with a New York promoter named Niederlander. And uh, at that time, we were doing shows at the, the Cal Palace, Oakland Coliseum, Greek Theater, Concord, up until then. And basically that in San Jose, a few shows in San Jose, maybe down at Frost. That started when the city of Concord made a deal with Niederlander to basically throw us out. It, it started a kind of a vicious competitive war because Bill's philosophy and I learned this on my, my first week on the job. I remember going into Bill, Bill's office, and thinking I'm some young guy. Hey, Bill, I got this idea. You know, you know the pizzas we sell? If we cut them into little smaller pieces and we could charge a little more, we, you know, we'd make more. And Bill said, son, <laughs> sit down. <laughs> there are two things you have to know if you're, going, if you're going to last here, if you're going to work out here. One. Bill Graham Presents is a very good example of a profit-making company. Two, Bill Graham Presents is a very bad example of a profit-maximizing company. And that's a philosophy that I, I still think of to, and, and run my own life to this day. And it got to the point, Bill, was, Bill did not like high ticket prices on any level. And Bill would say to us, if he thought a ticket price was too high, doing it. Danny? Yes. It's not you. When you're at a restaurant, when someone comes in and sees me and says, Bill Graham ripoff, it, it's not you, it's me. You have to keep ticket prices low. You have to keep people coming to shows. You have to keep them knowing that that's, that's what they do on a Friday or Saturday night. Bill used to love to say that the highest compliment he actually ever received was in the film or auditorium one night. He's in the bathroom. They had already bought their tickets. They're inside. He goes in the bathroom. There are two guys taking a pee next to each other. One guy says to the other, hey, who's playing tonight? The other guy says, I don't know. It's the Fillmore. When you want to go to a show today, the first thing I think most people think is, how much are tickets? The first thing then was, oh, where are they playing? You didn't have to save up for shows. So what competition did and does in the entertainment industry, as opposed to any other industry, is competition is good in other industries because hopefully you'll get a better product at a lower price. In the entertainment industry, there's only one product. So when you're competing, you have to pay more and your ticket price, whether it's a, a, at a sporting event or an entertainment event, your ticket price will be higher. So this is the, the only industry that I know of 
where competition ends up in higher ticket prices. We saw our ticket prices creeping up because these agents in New York and LA every day would come up with a competing offer. So after we got thrown out of the Concord Pavilion, it turned into this bitter competition between us and the Greek theater and ended up in a, uh, well, two things happened. Uh, we figured, you know, and I went to Bill, I said, we, gotta get, we have to have our own amphitheater. So we first, uh, I made a deal with Cal Expo, the State Fair in Sacramento. That was our first amphitheater. It was, a, it was an old um, horse pasture, literally a horse pasture. We put up walls and, and we realized that we could, we could run an amphitheater. So when agents would call and say, we have a, a competing offer from Concord Pavilion, we'd say, well, you know, we have Cal Expo and that's a conflict, so you're either gonna have to play Cal Expo or, you know, the Concord Pavilion. It just got, it just got weird, it just, it just got really ugly. And the other thing that happened was um, the city of Concord ultimately sued us. And now uh, I'm getting really, I'm from Palo Alto. Bill hired me, I was doing the shows at Stanford before he came to me. So I, I really had a, I understood the South Bay, I think probably better than he did, which is why I, he hired me. So we're now looking for an amphitheater somewhere where we can be bigger at a lower ticket price than any place else. So I'm looking around for years and, and starting in 1981, we now have basically a, an understanding with the city of Mountain View to build an amphitheater on their garbage dump. For those of you who don't remember, it was an active garbage dump. When I first saw it, trucks were coming in and out. And uh, I went to the city and I said, you know, <laughs> wouldn't this be a perfect place for some of the shows that we do? <laughs> and, and the city, so this was, this was 19, about 1982, 83, when I, when I first started talking with them. This is the beginning of the high-tech revolution to speak of. There was no Yahoo, no Google, app, there was Apple. So I, I approached the city of Mountain View and I said, listen, you know, we'd love to do this, you know, build an amphitheater here because look at what your neighbors have. Palo Alto has Stanford University. Cupertino has Apple Computer. Sunny, uh, San Jose is considered Silicon Valley. Mountain View has a garbage dump. It resonated with them. <laughs> I met some people on the, the staff, the council down there, and the uh, city manager who were, you know, who bought it. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately they bought it. Meanwhile, we still have this battle going on with Concord. This was not really getting, it really wasn't getting much news, much press, but you don't know is it, Bill had a, it was a large company we had. You, you see all the, you know, the, the rock and roll blitz. But we had a large company, a large payroll, we had a management company, a production company, a sound and lights company, ad agency, and then we did shows wherever we could. So it was, it was a, a large company by any basis, but that, that part we never really talked about and Bill didn't want to talk about it because people would come to a concert and Bill always said, when they're coming to a concert, it's like going to a restaurant. You don't want to hear the maitre d' or your waiter say, Oh, the, the produce was late today, the, you know, someone didn't come to work. No, they're coming, they're coming to escape reality. That's why they're coming to shows. So we get into this battle with Concord. Concord sues us. 
in, in front of the judge. I'm in the, it was a settlement room. And they were suing us. Uh, it was over, uh, it was Kenny Loggins. They said that we had, <laughs> not that it matters. <laughs> that, that we had induced an artist to breach their contract. The city of Concord said that uh, they had a contract with this artist. We said they didn't. The artist said they didn't. But the city is really trying to drag us down and take us to the cleaners. We're also kicking the, we're kicking the shit out of them. Because Niederlander from New York didn't know the Bay Area. They didn't have any relationships here to speak of. They didn't have what we had. But they had enough to make our life difficult. And that was, that was enough for us. So as part of the court settlement, the city of Concord agreed that we could continue to do shows at Concord if we did not build Shoreline Amphitheater. There were people in the company that uh, did not want to build Shoreline because it was very expensive. And I went to Bill and I said, you know, Bill, it's just a matter of time. If we don't build Shoreline, the, the stirrus that we've had in Concord is just going to come up again, whether it's with Concord or, or someplace else. I said, we have to have a place that the artists have to play if they want to make a lot of money at a low ticket price. Because the lower the ticket price, the more tickets they're going to sell and the more t-shirts they're going to sell because that's how that was their mindset in, in the mid-80s. So we go back into Concord. We build Shoreline. Meanwhile, this vicious competition with us and other promoters at the Cow Palace and in Oakland came to a stop, uh, I think, one, one day about six months before the uh, first season of Shoreline, six, a few months before we opened, I get a call from an agent. Hey, Danny, we got this act. It was a big act. We'd really like to play for you, but we have an offer from the Cow Palace. I said, you know what? You better take that offer from the Cow Palace. And here's why you should take the offer from the Cow Palace. The Cow Palace holds 14,500 people. Shoreline holds 20,000 people. If you sell 14,500 tickets at the Cow Palace, you'll make X. If you sell the same number of tickets at Shoreline, you'll make X plus Y. If you sell 5,000 tickets more, a third more at Shoreline than you do at the, at the Cow Palace because of the economics of how we would pay artists, you'd sell, you would sell a third more, you would make double what you would make on the first 14,000 people. And you'd sell more t-shirts. But you're right, Mr. Agent. You better take that show at the Cow Palace and you show your client how you know how to minimize how much money they can make. <laughs> and in that one phone call, it changed everything. We were able, we never had fights after uh, about the Cow Palace, the Oakland Coliseum. We kept our ticket price down, which Bill loved. It put the company on a different level because economically that was the, the, the biggest investment we had ever made. A couple of stories about the investment in the last couple of minutes. Bill took such pride in not selling out. A couple of Shoreline stories. Shoreline, we could not get financing for it. We couldn't get financing for it because we didn't own the land and it was a garbage dump, which meant <laughs> it had, you know, who, knew what, who knew what was under the ground there. So the city agreed to loan us money on the condition that we use their bird as a logo. 
This turned out to be one of the biggest fights that Bill and I ever had. He did not want that fucking bird in his ass. That's not, I'm not, I said, Bill, it's just a fucking bird. Who gives a shit? I do. Okay. Okay. We finally agreed that for the $8 million that the city was going to loan us, that we, and I convinced Bill, we will, and I convinced the city, we will use your bird as the logo if we use a bird as a logo. We signed the deal. We turned the, we turned the logo into the tent. <laughs> you missed what I said. I said, if we use the bird, we'll use your bird. We didn't have to use a bird. We used the tent as a logo. It worked for everyone. Um, we, had a, we had a multi-million dollar deal with Pepsi-Cola that helped us build the amphitheater. Pepsi-Cola wanted it to be the Pepsi-Cola music something. I said, no, we'll make it the Pepsi-Cola concert series. Shoreline Amphitheater, Pepsi-Cola concert series. Inside, we'd have on the side somewhere a Pepsi-Cola sign, which is what they wanted. Bill did not want signs. When you come to a show, you're escaping reality. <laughs> You're not coming to re, you know, buy this or eat that. You're coming to a show to get away from that. So I came up with this deal. I said, OK, you're right, Bill. When the show happens, there'll be nothing. So at Shoreline, you'll see on the walls, it's like a, um, there's a, a curtain that, that we could draw. So we had our poster. It said Pepsi-Cola. When the lights came down, the artists went on stage. The curtains were closed. And so everyone was happy. That's how Bill really stood up for what he believed in and what he felt the audience not only wanted but deserved. And they deserved to not being told of reality when they're coming to escape reality. It's the opposite of today. One other point in the contract, uh, I made sure and we all agreed that it would always be called the Shoreline Amphitheater. It was not, the name was not for sale. It is the only venue that I can think of that isn't Quicken Loan Amp, you know, Oracle, or what, what, you know, whatever, whatever. So, so those, are, those are my Bill Graham stories, and, um, and that's how Shoreline came to be.